this special episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the IFG. In these one-offs, we're taking a break from the day-to-day of politics in Westminster to take a wider view of government. I'm Hannah White, Acting Director of the Institute for Government, and today we're going to be talking about the life cycle of a government minister. What is it like to enter government, get up to speed in a job, perhaps be reshuffled or promoted, and inevitably, eventually, to leave government? I'm delighted to be joined by a great panel. David Gork, former MP for South West Hertfordshire and a minister under both David Cameron and Theresa May, serving in the Treasury and then as Secretary of State for Work and Pensions and for Justice. Hi, David. Hello. Good to be with you. And Jim Murphy, formerly MP for East Renfrewshire, who held various ministerial positions under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, including Minister for Europe and at the end of the last Labour government, Secretary of State for Scotland. Hi, Jim. Hi. And my colleague, Dr Catherine Haddon, who is a senior fellow at the IFG. Hi, Hannah. And Tim Durrant, Associate Director, who leads our Ministers Reflects programme. Hi, great to be here. So we're going to hear various former ministers talk about their experience of public office, drawing on our amazing archive of interviews called Ministers Reflect. We'll be tracing their career from their first ministerial job to their last hearing how that compares with Jim and David's experience and what all this means for government. So let's get started. Of course, the first step to being a minister is being appointed. Kath, can you tell us a bit first about how it all works behind the scenes? How is it organised? Yeah, so it basically all revolves around a whiteboard. Um, And so for most ministers, they haven't got a clue. There'll be all sorts of speculation. There's already speculation about who Liz Trussell or Rishi Sunak might appoint to any future governments. But that is just what that is, speculation. Nobody knows for sure. It's only ever um, a prime minister or a wannabe prime minister and a very close team around them who might be talking about this at the moment. But when in office, whether it's you know a new government formed after a general election or like this after a leadership contest, they then sit down with some key civil servants, some of whom wheel in the whiteboard. And the whiteboard lists all the different jobs of government, uh, the departments and uh, the various ministers that you have in each department. And you basically start filling them. Um, and usually when it's a reshuffle, you've got all the names of the uh, current government sitting there and then it's about sort of moving people around with post-it notes and the like. Um, but when it's sort of forming a new government, you know, you're effectively starting with a potential blank slate uh, and starting to do that. So once that happens, they've got to inform the palace, uh, make sure that the appointment's happy to, to go ahead. And then it's about contacting uh, the, the MPs in question and letting them know and usually asking them to come into number 10 where they see the Prime Minister and perhaps get told by them directly or maybe the Chief Whip if it's a more junior position uh, before they get given the job but sometimes they are in far-flung places and it is just a phone call that allows them to, to find out. And, th- and that uncertainty you're describing Kath about who's going to get appointed is the same for for the wannabe ministers as it is for the rest of us who are all sitting there waiting for the outcome of a reshuffle. Jim, what was the waiting game like for you? It was bizarre. (laughs) And when the Prime Minister called me, I hung up the phone on him because I thought it was was a friend having a laugh at my expense. I was in Japan on holiday (laughs) with some friends. I was in my hotel room. Um, with another MP whose name I whose name I won't mention, but we were sharing a room, and he insisted in being naked the whole time he was in the hotel room, <laughs> <laughs> which I found really peculiar. 
but he said that's that's how he lived at home and the hotel was home from home and i thought how do i get a new roommate for my hotel and then the phone rang and someone said could you hold for the prime minister please and i thought it was a wind up and i said i write which in glaswegian means you're taking the piss <laughs> they thought i meant yes of course um and i hung up the phone and it took the third call um before i accepted that indeed the person on the phone that wanted to speak to me was tony blair and it so happened that when we were in there to tokyo a cabinet minister had resigned and as a consequence of all the fallout i got appointed to the cabinet office a job that i really enjoyed but that was a peculiar start to the role <laughs> And there are certainly other people who've been in rather strange circumstances when the phone call comes in, as Margot James found when she was appointed as a junior minister in the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy in July 2016. Um, but rather oddly, I was in, um, I received the news in the uh, public conveniences of Deal Town Hall, <laughs> which was a very strange place to be. I I was there on a private family friend type basis and um um a call came um and i was i was not exactly expecting a call but i was certainly hoping for a call so i was in a continuous state of nervous (laughs) anticipation um so i jumped on the phone as soon as the call came Um, and because it was quite a busy environment i just rushed to somewhere quiet and that was the nearest place i could find um (laughs) And um, so I was just told that, you know, a few complimentary remarks. And then I was just told that the Prime Minister wanted me to go to Bayes as Parliamentary Undersecretary um, for small business. I think that was all I knew at that point. Um, And on my way back from Deal, I had a phone call from the person who was to become the head of my private office Mm. um, to explain a few things. and make an appointment for me to go in and, and see her. Um, so that was how it all happened. David, can you beat that? <laughs> oh, I can't. Uh, none of my stories feature any nudity. I could be, <laughs> be honest about that. Now, the, the, the oddest location I had was actually not joining the government, but joining the front bench. So I was on a family holiday uh, sort of wits and break of, of 2007 and Graham Brady had resigned over grammar schools. And, and I was aware, I wasn't following the news particularly closely. And then the phone call came through and it was Ed Llewellyn, who was chief of staff, uh, for David Cameron, who sort of said, Oh, we'd like you to join the front bench. And I was completely, you know, it wasn't as if there was a reshuffle going on. Um, there was just the vacancy that I wasn't even aware of. And he said, Oh, by the way, you do support our policy on grammar schools, don't you? And I said, Yeah, yeah, that's, I certainly do now. Uh, so that was uh, that was this, and I did have um, so after the 2017, uh, well actually sorry, after the 2010 general election where the coalition was formed, and there was a long period of time of uncertainty, and it took a long time for the junior ministers to be appointed. Yeah, we were at the bottom of the list, and I'd essentially been waiting around for a couple of days, just waiting for a phone call, and I was I was in my office. And uh, there was some cricket on, I think. And then the phone call came in to my to to, to my uh, office phone, and they said, um, "You know, are you available for a phone call from the Prime Minister?" 
And at one level, I was extremely excited. At the other level, I was sort of a bit annoyed of having waited so long. And I was quite tempted to say, can he just wait until the end of the over? <laughs> but uh, and then the other the other sort of slightly strange one was after the 2017 general election, where there was a very small reshuffle of the cabinet that Theresa May did. And again, I wasn't really expecting it. And I was at home and I was you know, literally on the sort of, you know, serving up a barbecue. And, you know, in in short in Hertfordshire, I was in shorts, T-shirt, barbecue sauce dribbling down my chin. And the phone call came, came in and said, can you be in Downing Street in 20 minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, so to which the answer was no. But uh, you know, I aban- abandoned lunch, uh, <laughs> had a quick shave and a wash uh, and um, put a suit on to, to the sort of customary walk up Downing Street. Can I ask about that walk up Downing Street? Because that's the bit that we all see and there's always the speculation. But um, it's not always going in and for the post that people are expecting, isn't it? There's a lot of waiting around inside Downing Street where you get shuffled around various rooms, isn't it, before you get given and get told, get, get go into the Prime Minister and get told the job. Yeah, that's right. And what people don't, most people don't realise is that, of course, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were completely different characters in how they organised their government and how they sought to run the country. I was close, um, good relationships with both of them, but closer to Tony. Um, but despite that, Tony wasn't very good at reshuffles. <laughs> um, he just wasn't. Gordon was much more effective in his, his reshuffles. Um, and by, by that, I mean, Tony really didn't like to disappoint people. So there are one or two examples not uh, that don't involve me, where people left the room with Tony believing he had sacked them and the person leaving the room thought they were still in their job. Um, and Tony would often use code words like, well, you will have a chance to spend more time with your family, which was code for you've just been sacked. But the signals were occasionally so subtle that the minister didn't pick up on it. Either chose not to pick up on it or just um, just didn't hear it. So I know two, one or two friends who left who had to be re-sent re, um, for so that they could actually be sacked or subsequently sacked by the chief whip. Um, and then another, the flip side of that is twice, there was one reshuffle day where Tony gave me two jobs, one at the beginning of the day and one at the end of the day. <laughs> um, and I phoned the chief whip and said, chief whip, he's just given me two jobs. And Hilary Armstrong, who was a chief whip, said, uh, which one would you rather have? <laughs> I thought the whiteboard went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I told her and she said, well, let's do a deal. You can pick which one you want as long as you never tell anyone. <laughs> so there's been a sufficient passage of time. I can now tell people. <laughs> Well, I, I was caught up in one reshuffle where, I mean, all, all my ones were relatively straightforward, but um, the, the, there was one in 2018 where Justine Greening was was being moved from education and she was, they wanted to keep her within the government and she wanted to stay in education. And the whole thing was very, very prolonged. And I was, I was actually in a radio studio. I was being interviewed by Emma Barnett. And at this point, you know, I was Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, and we'd had already had a long conversation, and, and and then there was breaking news about the reshuffle. At which point, Emma suddenly said, "Oh, and we've just heard that um, Justine Greening has been offered 
work and pension secretary. And, and I was sort of sat there trying very hard not to say, but that's my job. But I think I think I think Justine was still loitering in number 10 when I when I arrived several hours later to be given the job of, of, of Justice Secretary. Uh, but that was that was a more complicated one, I think, than, than Theresa May wanted. Yeah, there must be something about the Department of Work and Pensions, David, because I was when I was there in 2000 and I was there in 2008 and there was a reshuffle. And my friend Caroline Flynn, there was a reshuffle going on. This is so painful. There was a reshuffle going on while we were voting in the House of Commons. <laughs> so it's one thing watching the cricket or being at a barbecue, David. It's another when there's 300 of you all squeezed into the division lobby, all looking at your mobile phones, hoping that you're getting a job. But Caroline Flint approached me and said, I've just been offered a job. I'm not sure I should take it. And I thought, well, first of all, Caroline, I'm not sure that's how it works that you're offered a job and you get the right to refuse. But she she said, look, it's um, it's Minister for Employment and I don't know if I should take it. I said, Caroline, it's a great job. It's about poverty. You're the Minister for Labour in a Labour government. It's about family disadvantage. And she said, OK, you make it sound really fascinating. How do you know so much about it? And I said, because, Caroline, up until you spoke to me, I was the Minister for Employment. <laughs> <laughs> So very similar experience there. I hope Caroline, if you're listening, I hope Caroline, if you're listening, you don't mind me telling that story. All sorts of revelations coming out here. <laughs> so we've covered the getting of the job. And then, of course, what happens quickly after that is you head off to your department to meet uh, your private office, perhaps meet the permanent secretary. And pretty much immediately you're thrown into the job. The way in which ministers are thrown straight into the action was brilliantly illustrated by Tracy Crouch, who told us about getting her first ministerial job while she was on holiday with her husband. The, the bizarrest thing was actually um, arriving at our hotel in um, Ham Hampshire, no, Dorset, Dorset. And um, about so kind of three hours later, um, a box arriving. <laughs> that was like the bizarrest thing. It's sort of kind of not least because I also had a glass of wine in my hand. Um, but um, there were there were sort of kind of it's, you suddenly realised I think straight away that you you sudden your your timetable was not your own anymore. So David, can you tell us a bit about your first day as a minister and, and what that was like? Yeah, so the very first day as a minister, I arrived uh, in the Treasury and I met my uh, private secretary and uh, he, he sort of took me to the office, you know, presented with the the red box, uh, introduced me to the rest of the team uh, and, and sat me down. And, you know, almost immediately you kind of get stuck in and, and it's questions about, well, how do you, you know, how do you like to work? What are your priorities? Yeah, what's your working style? How much? Yeah, you know, what? How are you going to combine this with your constituency duties? Uh, when do you intend to be in the office? Yeah, you know, where do you want to be based? You know, just and it's it's it, it's quite daunting because um, although ideally you should have given all these questions some thought in advance, and yeah, you know, this was after a general election, and to be fair, we done 
quite a bit of training, including with the Institute for Government, uh, about a, a new minister. So some of these questions I was able to answer. But until you're really there, uh, you don't quite appreciate all the things that you've got to kind of work through. Um, but I was I was really impressed by the extent to which the civil service, you know, clearly you don't appreciate it quite to begin with, but they have done this very often before. They are very familiar with the process of bedding in a new minister. And, you know, they 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 know what the right questions are uh, and immediately kind of get you focused. And even if you don't necessarily have all the answers on that first evening, uh, by by the time you you you've, you've been there a little while, you 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 do. And and I can remember I, I had some very young children at the time, sort of phoning home. Like I went home in the ministerial car before we got rid of them for junior ministers, with my red box and 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 so on. And you know, phoned up and spoke to the family and said, "I'm yeah, I've become a minister, and you know, and I get to all this and so." Uh, and and uh, my eldest son, who was only sort of four or five at the time, was sort of fairly sort of unim unimpressed. No, actually, sort of a little bit older, sort of uh, seven, and uh, was was not that impressed until I said, "And I'm coming home in my car." <laughs> and that was that was that was the thing that they thought daddy's got a proper job now yeah he's got he's got a car and a driver um yeah li, li, yeah of course within about within about a month i think i'd stopped using the car but uh <laughs> but yeah that was so it was just, it was it, but it was really you know you really are thrown into it you meet a heck of a lot of people very quickly you you, you know you try and work out what your priorities are and and you're getting to know your private office which is a really important you know, they, they are really important relationships, uh, and and so it's important to start off on the right footing. It's interesting what you say there, David, about the civil service, because some of the people we interview for Ministers Reflect talk about a sort of wariness of the civil service when they first come in, and uh, especially if you're coming in from opposition um, into government. Obviously, the civil service have just stepped away from delivering the, the you know the, the program of, of your of your opponents. And that's actually something that Margaret Beckett told us of her concerns about working with the civil service when she came into government, uh, because she she wasn't sure, uh, given things she'd heard from her colleagues, uh, how that relationship would go. But she actually found that uh, she developed very good working relationships and 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 a great deal of respect for the civil service. Is that was that your experience? Is it is it fair that the ministers coming in should have that sense of wariness, or or is this just a, a sort of a bit of a problem about how some politicians conceive the civil service? I I don't think there should be a a, a wariness. I mean, it, something that is worth you know, bearing in mind is that obviously it depends on who your predecessors are, but they there is every chance that they will you know, think fondly of. The person that you have just replaced, uh, and in my particular case, there was, um, you know, almost a real tragedy because within within days of coming into office, my predecessor Stephen Timms was stabbed and very nearly killed, um, and you know that was that was quite a thing for my private office because only days before they had been working for. It. I mean. Yeah, you know, as it happens, I'm sure Jim shares this view. You know, Stephen is one of the nicest people in politics. I was, you know, very fond of him when I was shadowing him. Uh, and you know, thankfully he pulled through. But that was, you know, that was a difficult that was a difficult moment for them. And I you know, I didn't have, you know, obviously I didn't have a problem with that. But I mean, you know, you have got those existing relationships. But civil servants are, 
you know, are really professional and what they want to do is to make the new relationship work. And as long as you give them the chance to do that, that's that's exactly what they'll do. I think that when in the in your very first day as a minister, the civil service don't know you. But when you have reshuffles, when you when you're on that journey in your car between one department to another to start in a new department, you're absolutely certain that your old private office are on the phone to your new private office mm. telling them what you're like. Mm. So you arrive in your second job as a minister, relatively well known, um, whereas your first day is I, what I find most difficult. Um, and I think this is a good thing. Others may see it as weakness. Unless you're born to rule, unless you've been inculcated um, that this is your destiny, then day one, there's nothing wrong with feeling a little bit overawed by it. Um, because here you are on day one. Look, if you want to be a teacher or a doctor or a nurse or whatever, you go through years of training. Here you are, all of a sudden, you're the minister for, I became the minister for pandemic preparedness on my first Gosh. day as a minister. You're in a room full of people who know lots about it, and you know the least about it, and yet you're in charge. Now, that's fine. Constitutionally, you understand the logic of that, and that's the way it should be. But once you realise that you're there, not because you're the expert, but because you're expected to apply your judgement on top of that expertise and offer guidance and give decisions, then I think it's a lot more comforting. But to be frank, I find that quite difficult in my first week in the job. But I soon got in, into the balance. I remember Tony Blair told me once that for one of the reshuffles, he said, Jim, I want you to do this job. I said, okay, I don't know much about that, but that's fine. He said, well, just rely on the civil service because they have the engine of a Rolls Royce. So just get behind the wheel and drive it. He said, but also be aware, they have the brakes of a Rolls Royce. And if you don't drive them, they will find a lay-by to park in. <laughs> <laughs> so get behind the wheel, drive it. And I think my conclusion, David, I don't know what you think. The people who complain about the civil service, I think, are the people who are the ineffective ministers. They're either, yeah. they're either personally impatient, and there's nothing wrong with policy impatience, they they are poor communicators, or more likely, they chop and change what they want each and every day. And it's impossible for the civil service to follow a minister who continually chops and changes. So no matter which party's in power, when I hear stories of ministers lambasting the civil servants, I only think badly of the minister and not the civil servant. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Jim. Uh, and there's there's the the minister who just always ask for more information. Uh, yeah, I want, I want, oh, can I have another round of this, another round of that? I need more of that, which is just usually putting off uh, making a decision. And, and so those that complain how the civil service don't give you all the information that you want. Of course, there are times where you have to push further and you want further and better particulars. But 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 I think that can be a mistake for for, for ministers who are hiding behind their own indecision in terms of always seeking uh, uh, more evidence and then yes those who who quickly make a decision and then quickly make another decision and and so on and i think yeah if there's a piece of advice i was giving i would give to a new minister uh, as well as the points that you're making jim is i think you know don't don't you don't have to rush into a decision don't make a decision till you're kind of comfortable but 
you know, sometimes you're not going to have all the information. You're just going to have to make a decision with with what you've got. You make the best of the information that you have, and and be prepared to engage. You know, to 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 ask those questions. But once you've made a decision, you know, be prepared to stick to it. I think that's very fair, David. I, I think that's what's changed in our t- since our time, and I know we're sounding like two old men. Um, <laughs> These young but, people, they yeah. don't know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. But we we had the the relative luxury of time because social media wasn't ubiquitous when we were when we were ministers. It certainly when I was there, there wasn't. I mean, Facebook, Twitter. What, 2007, 2008, before these things became ubiquitous? Well, I started as a minister seven or eight years before that. And I, 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 I worry a little for the new ministers starting this summer or this, this autumn, um, because they have the, the urgency and the immediacy on their phone and the echo chambers on their phone. And I'm not sure how the civil service have adjusted to it. I'm confident they will have measures in place, but I think ministers continuing to take the advice from the civil service rather than from social media is important. I think the way in which the re- the public um, make their voices heard in policy decisions is by ministers just being constantly physically out and about rather than constantly in and on their phone. But perhaps it's that's an older, a sort of an older ex-minister's set of reflections. I think that's broadly right. I mean, I, I was obviously I was a minister a bit later, uh, and Twitter was a thing. Um, certainly, by the time I, you know, I was uh, a cabinet minister, it didn't it, it didn't that often force you into particular directions. I think it I think it was I think it was resistible most of the time. But I do look back and I wonder how um, yeah the twenty twelve budget which I was involved, which was not seen as being a total um, you know, total triumph. Uh, that, that was the early days of Twitter. I think that would have been a much, much more uncomfortable experience had Twitter been around, and, and especially as I was the one who was going out sort of defending policies and then explaining why they had been dropped uh, with, with a sort of interlude of only an hour or two between the two. Um, so that would have been much more uncomfortable. Uh, but but by and large, I, I think one can overstate the influence on on, on Twitter, and you know, the vast majority of decisions that ministers make will, will will not be picked up very much on social media. That's interesting reflections there from, from Jim and from David about the effectiveness of of ministers, and it's one of the things when we interview ministers for Ministers Reflect, we always ask them what they think it takes to be an effective minister. And it's quite interesting looking across the archive, how differently they define effectiveness. Can you just tell us a bit about that? What, what is the sort of um, spread of different ways in which ministers think about what success looks like in the job? When do they think they're doing well and, and what makes them think they're not doing well? Yeah, I think this is one of the most fascinating things about um, our, our way of governments and so forth, because, you know, David and, and Jim have already touched on some of the things that other think, people think is important. For civil servants, it is taking decisions and taking them well. Um, that's really important. They don't like equivocating ministers or, or ministers who are incapable of, of taking a decision. Um, 
for a lot of ministers, I suppose, talking around Parliament and so forth, you know, media performance does come into it. And whether or not you're capable on the airways, whether you've had a car crash interview on the Today programme or something like that is a, you know, it's a huge currency for political careers. And therefore, it is something that is a big standard. But when you actually get ministers in a room after they've left office, as we do, and talk to them about their time there, and you ask them what they're most proud of, they always end up talking about policy detail. Mm. Um, And it is the kind of nitty gritty. And it's often a policy that, you know, when we're sitting doing the research for that minister, we haven't necessarily sort of seen that as as the big thing, but it is, and it might not even be something that they managed to finish while in office. Often it's only worked on the first stages of getting you know this or that bill through and you know it was a great achievement so there is actually a motivation when they look back on their time in office that it is making a difference it is getting policy done it is um you know outcomes for the public that is what what motivates them what gives them the greatest satisfaction there's an intellectual component there as well but as Tim knows well, it unfortunately doesn't make enough of a, a difference when it comes to things like reshuffles and the way in which perhaps number 10 views the, the competency. Of I, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because there's so much about how ministers are judged on their performance that is about the kind of outward facing, the performative, the dispatch box. You know, you've got to maintain the confidence of the commons. You've got to show that you can deal with a tricky Today programme interview, whatever it might be. But that's only and that's obviously is hugely important, both for getting their agenda across and for kind of maintaining the wider government. But that's only one part of the job and the behind the scenes stuff of doing that policy detail, talking to the the difficult uh, stakeholders, to use the jargon, you know, the, the people who maybe are critical, but you need to bring them along with you. The the reading through the reams and reams of technical advice, obviously, you know, the last couple of years, we we know ministers will have been exposed to loads and loads of scientific advice that is just going to take a lot of hard yards to get through. And doing that detail is is kind of, I think, pretty thankless, but is is the kind of day-to-day of the job. Jackie Smith, when she spoke to us in the summer of 2016, talked about the impact of dealing with the terror crisis early in her tenure as Home Secretary and how public performance seemed to play a big part in how people judged her in that role. Um, I mean, you know, politically and personally, of course, what it did was put me in front of people quite early on. I mean, the irony, quite often say, you know, um, the thing that people most often said to me about my public performance that weekend was, you appeared a very, you know, you, you seem very calm and reassuring now. There's a certain subtext there, which is you were the first female Home Secretary and, you know, I think we partly thought you were going to go in, there would be a terror attack and you'd come out shouting, I can't manage it, bring a man in, you know. Um, but actually, of course, you don't get to be Home Secretary without having, you, you haven't done anything that is of that scale and public facing. But, you know, you've been, if you've done it for eight years, you've been through the mill, to be honest with you. You know, there aren't many media things or policy things or events that are going to be completely unusual to you. You've been through that. David, you want to go? I, well, I think the points that, um, that Kath and Tim make are, are important because this is multi-layered, if you like. There are, there are many things that ministers are required to do. I, I very much agree. It, 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 when you look back on your career, the stuff that really matters is where you've made a difference on on policy, you know, where you have, you have 
delivered something uh policy and and indeed implementation as well which can be can be ignored um that's the stuff that you know you really look back on one would hope with some prize um but you do also have to do the media stuff you do have to do the parliamentary stuff i mean i think it's that if you if you're a junior minister one thing i would i would say is important that shouldn't be overlooked is is in fact your relationship with your secretary of state um and you know that matters a great deal so i've you know for a long time i was a junior minister working for george osborne and that works i mean you know it was a it was a good relationship and the officials knew that i had his confidence so therefore they took me seriously and Mm -hmm. uh, that 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 matters if you're a junior minister who your secretary of state doesn't rate or who's you know for whatever reason ideological or otherwise on a different page then very quickly the officials will pick that up and you will find you know the the seniority of officials turning up at your meetings falling all the time and i can certainly think of one of my colleagues uh, in the treasury where that happened uh, and essentially you are pretty powerless because yeah. if the secretary of state is not going to back you up or the head of the department and you know, the chancellor in the case of the treasury then um then you are going to achieve very little mm. i think that's true david and i had i had a sort of mixed experience of this because my second job as a minister I was a junior minister at the cabinet office. Now, at the time, the cabinet office only had two ministers, and John Hutton was the Secretary of State. And for reasons that we don't have to go into in this podcast, John got promoted out, but they didn't reappoint. Tony Blair chose not to have a reshuffle. He just moved John into David Blunkett's job, and David had left government. And I was left running the cabinet office as a junior minister with no special advisors for nearly six months. Now, the Cabinet Office had five permanent secretaries Mm. and one junior minister with no special advisor. And so in that sense, I really took my authority from the the senior civil servants, knowing that I had a reasonably good relationship with Tony Blair in the absence of a Secretary of State. But if the civil servants had got a sense, and I'm not blaming them for this, is that the civil service want an effect to find the most effective way to uh, implement decisions. And if they had figured out if there'd been any sense that my relationship with Downing Street was fractious or uh, weak, then I think those five permanent secretaries would never have come to visit me in my office, even though I was the only minister. As it so happened, five working five office days of the week, I had a different perm sec every day of the week in my office. You both talked about sort of business as usual, what what you're trying to achieve on a day-to-day basis. Let's talk a bit, little bit now about crises. Um, so, David, what's it like when suddenly you're, you're going along, you're, you've got your priorities, you, you know what you're doing, and then a crisis hits? At one level, it it's obviously can be pretty terrifying. Uh, at another level... Um, don't get this the wrong way it can be quite exhilarating um because it is a moment where you are really tested you are likely to be under immense scrutiny um and you know it's a little bit 
like when you're about to sit exams where suddenly there is a great clarity because there's nothing else that matters you don't have to worry about anything else you are just focusing on one thing um if you know unless you've got two crises at the same time but um and in those circumstances i i, I think the you know what you what you need to do is kind of get your key people the people who you can who you can trust, whether they be officials, whether they be your political advisors, whether it's um, policy people or press people, and you know the challenge there is is to kind of really pick the arguments around. If you've got the time to do that, which even in most crises you do, um, and you know it 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 is a question of, of you know properly exploring what the options are, what the what the consequences will be and and just uh, uh, in an environment where people can speak their mind and you you want to encourage an environment where someone can say hey hold on um this is this is why this is what you're proposing is a stupid idea um it don't need to be quite that brutal but you you've got to have that in, environment where people are prepared to, to to speak so that you're not in a kind of group think environment and and every idea is properly challenged um, and and eventually you kind of li- eliminate the other options and come out with a plan. Um, and you know, and, and I kind of and some of the things I look back on, I mean, whether it went well or not, but of kind of almost the most satisfying moments were where you were faced with a sort of you know, very very tough decision, and you went in to a meeting and you didn't know where you were going to do, and you really tease out the arguments. And at the end of it, you come out with a plan. It may be a good plan, maybe a bad plan, but you've got a plan. And, and um, you know that 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 is quite an exciting moment as a as a minister. Would you agree, Jim? I do. I think that's right, David. And one of the things from new ministers is to figure out what is their threshold for what they believe to be a crisis. Part of the joy of being a minister is every day is different, um, or every day should be different. Um, and so, having an internal threshold of this is gen- this requires my full attention because. It is either a crisis or is about to become a crisis. Now, that was difficult at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office because there's a crisis. There's always a crisis somewhere in the world. And so you've then got to decide which of these events requires my personal intervention. So, for example, at the Foreign Office, I was responsible for Russia policy. Uh, Now, as David knows, when things like that happen, the, the Secretary of State, who at the time was David Miliband, actually perfectly reasonably becomes the operational minister on those sorts of things. When, for example, um, polonium-210 poisoning of Litvinenko in London, I think that qualified as a crisis pretty fairly. Um, So those sorts of things, you've got to decide what's your threshold, what's my intervention, and surround yourself with people who do not panic. And the last thing I would say to a new minister is, try and, and that is a matter of urgency, understand as many facts as possible and then make your decision. Don't be hesitant, don't wait till tomorrow, just get it done once you're confident you have enough facts. Now, the the, the longer term crisis that I suppose um, David then had to deal with as well was the great the financial crash of 2008 and onwards, David had to deal with the, the leg, some of the legacy. I was Secretary of State for Scotland when the Royal Bank of Scotland almost fell over and think by by any by any measurement that was a crisis, and I know people are very critical of Gordon Gordon Brown, and as I say earlier, I was closer to Tony than Gordon, um, but Gordon's actions in the operation of government when that happened, 
I think were exemplary. Every morning he had, in, in the COBRA meeting room, every morning he had a cabinet subcommittee of eight or nine of us. And we tried as best we could to navigate that global crisis in real time. At that point, David, you've been in that meeting room. Uh, rather than having people um, on screens coming from in all over the world, what we had was the falling stock exchange, exchange screens on each wall and screens. And that, my gosh, that certainly imbues you with a sense of this is a real-time crisis that we have to the best of our abilities to try and navigate. Now, of course, being a minister isn't a job with great job security. After a year or 18 months, maybe two years, if you're lucky, most ministers are probably looking down the barrel of a reshuffle. Andrea Ledson, who spoke to us in the autumn of 2020, talked about her disappointment in being moved. So I, um, again, was very disappointed to be moved on on that occasion because, you know, we were just getting somewhere and there had been a, you know, I, you know, there was an awful lot that was unfinished that I was really keen to get done. And I think that's one of the frustrations when you get moved once again mm. after only a year is you've, you've got a whole load of things that you're really, so I had the environment, the 25 year environment plan, I had the banning of ivory sales, you know, some really momentous things that people were really longing to see, all of the announcements about farm subsidies and, you know, really, yeah, so that was frustrating personally. So moving on again, I was just like, what is this job, you know, oh, why am I doing this? Why me? You know, ah. Tim, this is your specialist area. How disruptive are reshuffles to government and for individual ministers? I think they can be hugely disruptive. So from the point of view of a department, you know, you've got the minister up to speed, you know personally what they're like, what their priorities are, what, how they like to work, but also you you understand what their what their policy agenda is, and then there's a potential that it changes completely. Now a, a junior minister several years into a government term might not have that much leeway to to make big changes to to policy but for example we know or, or we expect rather that in in september when there's a new pm there might be some quite significant changes on policy big policy issues the online harms bill is one where we might see a complete change of direction um big questions about tax cuts obviously with the treasury will be working through the various options over the summer so it can mean a big kind of if not a 180 degree turn, a sort of, I don't know, 90 degree plus turn uh, in terms of what a department is working on. And then for the individual minister, I think it's 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 a big shock. We we interviewed Ken Clark for our Minister's Reflect programme and he talked about feeling confident and knowing knowing what, what you're about in a particular department. And then you're panicking because you've got to get up to speed with, you know, before you were running the railways and now you're running the court system or you're in charge of schools or whatever it might be. And and while the skills of being a minister and understanding how to kind of work the government machine, you can keep building and, and those transfer from department to department. The policy content is going to be quite different. The people you need to know, the relationships you need to have, they're all going to be quite quite different. So it's a steep, I think, no matter how many ministerial jobs people do, they tend to say to us, every time you change, there's always that moment at the beginning of the new one of, oh God, what's all this about? How do I how do I learn what's going on here? Sound familiar, Jim? Yes, it does. In every, in every job, you've got that first day at a new school feeling um, and a sense of, okay, what do they know about? What, is the, what does the department expect? What does the prime minister expect? What am I going to help to deliver? 
And David, I don't know if it was different with Conservative Prime Ministers, but broadly speaking, with both Tony and Gordon, you were given the job and perhaps one sentence of guidance. I really want you to go and do this in that department. Um, and that's not the best way to, or, to run a railroad, so to speak. But I think one of the really important things about reshuffles is that one of, you, one of the roles of a minister is to say to the, the system and the structures, why are we doing it like this? And I find myself in the second year of one job in particular, no longer asking why, because there was an annualised rhythm to the departments working. And I find myself asking, how are we going to do this? And that's the point where I thought I need to be reshuffled <laughs> because I'm no longer the effective internal challenge to quite effective status quo, but nevertheless, just challenge and offering that sort of senior challenge to the system. But I never wanted to leave any of the jobs that I was reshuffled out of. I, I loved them all. And I don't know what I did in one of them, but four out of the five jobs, I got nice little leaving gifts from my private office. So I have always wondered why the fifth one didn't, but perhaps one day they'll tell. <laughs> well, Jim, you raised a really interesting point about sort of longevity in, in office. And I had I had the sort of two extremes in a way, because I did the essentially the minister for tax job in the Treasury for six years, which is not quite unprecedented, but is is unusually long. And then I did um, a year at Chief Secretary and seven months at uh, DWP and 18 months uh, as as MOJ. And that was actually quite long by recent standards. And I think there, it does change the way you're thinking. So, um, I mean, the tax job, which is very technical and quite detailed, I think it was really helpful to be there for a long period of time. Uh, and I'd shadowed it for three years as well. And there were advantages to it, but you you also could get into some bad habits. I mean, you know, finance bills. I was I found by the end I was doing those on autopilots, um, whereas previously, you know, you you were really sort of teasing out every particular sort of point in preparation for the parliamentary stages. Uh, but when you're in in a place for just a short period of time, you don't expect to be there for very long. And for most of my time at MOJ in Theresa May's government, you know, I was expecting not to be the Secretary of State for very much longer. Uh, you, you, that can give you an urgency uh, that that is 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 quite refreshing and a sort of sense of well, I might not be here in a month's time, so I'm going to get done what I want to get done now, and you go at a faster pay, pace. Um, but the problem I found with with that job is because I wasn't there very long, you couldn't really embed anything. You could set a new sense of direction and you could change the approach of the department. And yeah, there was lots that you could do, but it was quite easy for quite a lot of what I had done to be reversed. Not all of it was. And Robert Buckland ca carried on many of the things that I was doing. Um, but there were some other things that got reversed. And you know, if you if you're moved around quite a lot, uh, it's hard to make anything very permanent. I think that's fair, David. I think I, I stayed in each job on average 18 to 24 months. Um, and I, I I understand the point about tax policy in six years. Um, but I think personalities are different. And I, I am a fan of the permanent civil service and temporary ministers. 
I think it's the right balance rather than permanent ministers and temporary civil servants. One of the things that a good piece of advice I was given when I was a new minister was from Jack Straw, um, who told me, look, you've got to protect one hour of every day um, and use it for thinking time. And so for new ministers, um, I, th- I, I do, be- I believe that's absolutely crucial. You protect that, okay, if a crisis happens, that devours your one hour. But in the normal operation of government, um, protect one hour to think every day during the day. Not after you've done your red boxes at two in the morning, don't start thinking then. Well, the truth is, as a minister, don't stop thinking, but have Mm. protected thinking time for an hour a day. Now, one of my friends who also got that advice, another minister who, again, I won't name, pretty reasonably closed the curtains and closed the shutters in his office and went for a sleep for an hour because he found that to be the best use of his the best use of his thinking time. But I think Jack Straw got that advice from the famous Barbara Castle, and I was happy to adopt it as a working operation, and I'd recommend it to other new ministers as well. Uh, yeah, I think it is good advice. I mean, different, people think in different ways, and I, I, you know, so I sometimes think, looking back that quite useful thinking time could be have just chatting to your private office or if you've got spat you know, if you're more senior if you've got special advisors and and just not necessarily you know massively sort of focused meeting but kind of chit chatting and a kind of why why don't we do this has anyone ever thought about that and and just sort of bouncing ideas and encouraging your private office to come forward with ideas you know they're not just there to to you know to to do what you say but you know they they often in my experience have got really interesting thoughts about you know this the department's not very good at doing this or we could do these things a bit more and, and they wouldn't necessarily be all that forthcoming and setting that out but but encouraging them to go and then just about you know that that sort of willingness in a quite an unstructured way to bounce ideas Absolutely. off each other i think was really important i think that's right david and other things that new ministers can do, again, I, just, these, I think these are good ideas, so they probably weren't mine, but I did them in any <laughs> case, was, was I'd say to the civil service, what are the three totemic books on this subject that I'm now in charge of? And as well as reading in the briefings that the civil service gave me, um, that was really important. And then I would say, who are the experts in this field? Those who agree with our philosophy and those who disagree. Let's have some lunches in my office over a sandwich and let's spend an hour debating it and let, just letting me hear. And I'm, I, le- I learn by hearing rather than reading. I'm not saying I can't read. That's not the point. <laughs> but I learn best. But I learn, I learn best by being challenged. And so there's, I'd say to new ministers, find additional ways um, to complement the excellent insights your private office do give you. David, I think a fair few current ministers and perhaps some who recently resigned will be pondering at this stage whether their careers in government are going to continue or resume, perhaps. Can you just give us a bit of an insight into what it's like to to leave ministerial office? You talked about how you had a period of, of your career when you were anticipating that might happen at any moment. Yeah, in the end, I was, I suppose, really lucky because most ministerial careers end with a bit of a shock. Um, you know, there's a reshuffle and you get called in and you're told to spend more time with your family or whatever it might be. 
Um, for for me, having you know, well, I I I left with Theresa May. Um, once she had resigned, and once it was pretty obvious that Boris Johnson was going to succeed, uh, I I you know I knew precisely the date on which I was leaving government. And I had the fortunate privilege of being able to plan for that. So I sort of went around and delivered speeches that were, um, whether they were of any interest to anybody else, but they, you know, I found them unburdening and that sort of cheered me up. I held parties for, um, you know, my private office and other officials. Um, you know, I had, I you know, went around and saw the, you know, the, in, in my case, the sort of senior judiciary for one last time. You know, it was a kind of a, a farewell tour that I was able to do, knowing precisely when I was going to to go. Because for so many ministers, you know, it's either a sort of general election where you've got to, you know, as with, with Jim, but you've got to kind of hold up some hope that you're going to, you know, hang on. So you can't you can't go around and say, cheerio, I'm obviously going to be defeated. Uh, other ministers, as I say, it's going to be in a reshuffle where maybe it's widely predicted, but you always hope it's going to go uh, a different way. Um, some decide to leave government, but usually you've got to be quite um, private about that. You can't you can't announce it. So, yes, looking back, I, I, I think, you know, I had quite ministerially, I had quite a good death. Um, because because I I knew when it, I knew it was coming um, and uh, I was I was um, uh, reconciled to that and, uh, and and yes I sort of sort of left more or less on my own terms. That's fascinating, David, to hear that insight because my experience um, was slightly different of it in, in that when Tony Blair left and Gordon Brown arrived, I wasn't certain I would my ministerial career would continue. And I remember being in the outer room of Gordon Brown, what had been Tony Blair's study, and the next morning was Gordon Brown's study, um, and wondering whether I was in the the outer room to be fired or promoted. And it turned out, unexpectedly for me, I was promoted. Now, my my end as a minister came on the same day as my, the same time as my end as an MP, um, because I lost both my cabinet role and my constituency um, in the election of 2015. Um, and I, I reflect sometimes, my last act as a minister was in the morning that Gordon Brown called the election in 2015. And, yes. so, sorry, 2010, I am sorry. Um, my, my last act as a minister yeah, was when Gordon Brown called that election in 2010. You're not having um, another five years, Jim. Well, <laughs> <laughs> David, I think it won't be so long before Labour has a chance at it again, <laughs> depending, depending on the outcome of the leadership contest. Um, but, yeah, so in 2010, when Gordon called the election, the, you need you need to have a meeting of the Privy Council to formalise that. And I get a call from my private office to say that there wasn't a quorum for a Privy Council meeting. I had to hot-foot it down to Windsor Castle to see Her Majesty, to form a quorum for the Privy Council meeting to call the election. Um, I sometimes wonder if I hadn't gone, could the election not have been called and I may have survived? Uh, but that's for another, that's, a, that's a, a podcast for another day. But I think I, I love thinking back in the way that David had. I loved both the ups and downs of my time as a minister. I think there were marginally more ups than downs. And it's back to the old, the old adage that the very worst day in government is immeasurably better than the very best day in opposition. 
And I think everyone in politics and parliament should remember that. I think that's a very good point for us to stop today. That's all we have time for. And I think we could have kept going on a lot longer. If you'd like to learn more about what it's really like to be a minister or are pondering whether you will become a minister this September, all our Ministers Reflect interview transcripts are available on our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk forward slash ministers hyphen reflect. And we've got lots of useful guides to ministerial roles on our website and more coming in time for September. So there's no excuse for being unprepared. So I'd just like to say a big thank you to our brilliant panel. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Kath. And particular thanks to Tim, who is responsible for brilliantly managing our Ministers Reflect programme. Tune in again next week for the next special episode of Inside Briefing and keep an eye on our website and social media for new Ministers Reflect interviews.